This podcast may contain explicit language. Welcome to the Greatest Movie of All Time podcast, the show that uses a unique grading style to redefine what the greatest movies are. I'm Tom Duncan. And I'm Dana Duncan. Tonight we apply our patent-pending Stanley rubric to one of our mutual favorite comedies, Blazing Saddles from 1974, directed by Mel Brooks, written by Andrew Bergman, starring Cleavon Little, Gene Wilder, Harvey Korman, Madeline Kahn, and Alex Karras. This movie was nominated for three Academy Awards and is considered one of the fathers of the spoof comedy. So, Dad, let's open with this. Why is this movie still so funny about 48 years later? (laughs) Well, first of all, we're still battling racism, and the film is nothing more than to poke fun not only at Westerns in general, but to poke fun at the racism that was so permeating through society then and 48 years later, is still permeating through society, but unfortunately has cleaned up and not used certain terms or phrases uh, so that it's more underground. So it's a little more difficult to see the insidiousness of it, but it generally still exists. So it's funny because of that aspect and the jokes hold up well as a result. Moreover, There are so many different bits that are so popular yet today and are so much recycled. The double entendre, there are plays off of the traditional jokes that the Marx Brothers did, and it's generally just the absolute silliness, the stupidity of things. It's a type of humor where it just shows things that we take especially in Western, so seriously, they make fun of it by showing that it really should not be taken as seriously as it should. Just about every stock character is represented in this movie, whether you want to talk about the drunk ex-gunslinger or the giant heap of man that comes to destroy the town or the femme fatale who shakes her legs and all of a sudden makes the hero swoon, and all of them are undercut through the course of this movie. You can go back. One of our favorite Westerns and one we've done is Rio Bravo. I mean, Cleavon Little is John Wayne, except that he's black and has to face the racism and prejudice of the town. John Wayne just had to face the the wrath of town because they didn't want to get involved in his violence and war against... uh, the bad guys in that film. We even have Madeline Kahn playing the part, which was really Marlena Dietrich. And you can look at that as Angie Dickinson, and you can look at Gene Wilder as playing Dean Martin. So it's virtually taking Rio Bravo or a whole host of other Westerns and making it into humor. Well, I would say there's a very distinct difference between all of the John Wayne heroism of westerns versus what Cleavon Little accomplishes in this movie. As opposed to being the best shooter or being able to be more courageous or simply just being luckier, he outsmarts everybody at every turn. And it's 
kind of undercutting the that those that were subservient that were working railroad jobs would end up being the guy who is the smartest out of the bunch and outthink all of these highly important people, including the attorney general of a state. Yes. Well, you have to think. These were people of the land, the common clay. You know, morons. Absolutely. I don't know. I think part of this also has to do with the fact that at the time... Westerns had kind of died out. This was right at the tail end where Westerns were pretty much gone. There was the occasional one here or there, but even they were a little bit lighter or they were just extremely gritty, like any of the Peckinpah Westerns of the 70s. But in this modern sense, because the Western trope has been modernized and we've gotten a few of these to kind of come back or we've remade a few Westerns, I think it still lives with people as to what a Western is and thus poking fun at it like this and the mythos that we place on it all the time still plays because it's relevant to the audience. Yes, Westerns have kind of declined, but there were still Westerns being made. This kind of, and I've heard this comment made by film critics, this put the nail in the coffin of the Western. It was after this that the Western just did not have the luster that it once had because it just showed the level of stupidity that fell behind some of the common themes and common tropes that are contained within the Western that we just took for granted. Well, it was the thin line between this heroism we place on Westerns, the thin line between heroism and silliness. Correct. See, my thought on this is human emotion is not like on a line, like it goes to the left, to the right. It's a circle. And what ends up happening is, is when you get to the top of the circle, on one side of the point where it meets again, you have sorrow, gloom, despair. And on the other side, you have humor and laughter, which is why in very tight, tense situations, people will just finally start to laugh. It's a nervous laugh, but it's because the emotions are so similar, actually. And it's easy to see. I mean, that's that's the whole heart of what is black humor, being that the dark... Black meaning dark humor. Dark humor, yes. And so I see that is coming around on that circle. And this film continually pushes back and forth showing the that where you should have concern or rage or anger or whatever, and then just automatically just turns it. I mean, you know, the concept of sending two African-Americans out to find quicksand and not caring about them as opposed to a $75 rail car. Well, you know what that makes me think of? Every time I would sit back in my chair at the dining room table when I was a kid and you and mom would say, we can't replace the chair. We can replace you. (laughs) Yeah, well, that was a joke. Really? I said you're one of a kind. Well, thank you. What uh, is your relationship to this movie? You know, I stopped to think about this, and I cannot actually remember the first time I saw this movie. I just started watching it, 
And I don't know when I start watching it, but I watched it like every time I could. I want to say it happened in the late seventies. I'm watching it on HBO. And at the time, you know, you used to get this little thing called an HBO guide. I don't know if they still send it out. I doubt it. But this HBO guide showed you whenever the movies were going to be on that they had on HBO. And I remember going, okay, well, it's on this time. So I'm going to watch it then. And then it's on this time. I'm going to watch it. I probably watched it like five or six times in the span of about a year. So it's hard for me to say, but it just got to a point where by the time I got to college, I'm quoting lines from this and people were looking at me like I'm insane because not everybody had seen the film. And I ended up becoming friends with another guy who I've lost contact with. Dale Barrage, by the way, if anybody, if you happen to know he's listening or anybody knows him, have him contact me. I'd appreciate it. He was a good friend in college and I've lost track of him. Anyway, we, he, we, he and I would talk about Mel Brooks films. And so that's where our friendship started. So I can't really give you a point where I knew it, but it's been so much a part of my life that I can't, I can't divorce myself from having knowledge of the film and enjoying the film. And we've talked about films like that before, the ones that you've just seen so many times you forget the first time that you saw it. I don't remember the exact first time that you showed it to me. I was probably maybe like 10, 11, 12. And of course, I'm not going to understand all the racial humor, but I just remember at the end of the film, it struck me very much like the end of Monty Python and the Holy Grail. It was a, what the fuck is this ending? (laughs) Because they come storming out of the studio and then you go to the commissary and of course there's this actor Hitler in there and I'm just like, what the hell is this? (laughs) It's not just breach the fourth wall. It's like blow it up. I still don't know how to really make out that ending. It It's just, I think that was Mel Brooks not knowing how to end it, so he just was humoring himself. Well, but throughout the film, how many times did Cleavon Little turn and look into the camera and talk to us directly? Well, Harvey Corman did it too. Well, yeah. I mean, so they were constantly breaching the fourth wall. And as long as you've breached it once, twice, three times, why not just go whole hog? and just blow it completely up and make the ending so farcical that no one would believe that this film actually achieved what it did. All right. Let's give the people at home a little bit more background on the movie. Do you have a plot summary ready for us? I do. When the new railroad route must be changed and go through the town of Rockridge, the conniving attorney general, Headley, or should I say Hetty? No, we would get sued. Yes, Lamar, Harvey Corman, looks for a way to drive out the town's residents so he can snatch the land. Moreover, Lamar talks the governor into appointing the first black sheriff, Bart, Cleavon Little, hoping to cause further chaos and disorder. When Bart arrives in town, he is anything but popular. However, he soon teams up with the Waco kid, Gene Wilder, a washed-up gunslinger, who becomes his deputy. Will the people of Rock Ridge be able to stand against the scheming of Lamar, or will he get the last laugh? Thank you. Cast for this movie, Mel Brooks as the governor, William J. LePetamain, 
the Indian chief, and the director. Andrew Bergman as writer, Cleavon Little as Bart, Gene Wilder as Jim, Slim Pickens as Taggart, Harvey Corman as Hedley Lamar, Madeline Kahn as Lily Von Stupp, Burton Gilliam as Lyle, Alex Karras as Mongo, Dave Huddleston as Olson Johnson, Liam Dunn as Reverend Johnson, John Hillerman as Howard Johnson, George Firth as Van Johnson, Claude Anasteret Jr. as Gabby Johnson, Carol Arthur as Harriet Johnson, and Richard Collier as Dr. Sam Johnson. Recognition for this movie, Blazing Saddles was released on February 7th, 1974. It was met with mostly mixed reviews at the time, but has since become a comedy classic. The film currently holds an 89% on Rotten Tomatoes among critics, a 73 score on Metacritic, and a 3.9 out of 5 on Letterboxd. The film earned theatrical rentals of $26.7 million in its initial release in the United States and Canada. In its 1976 reissue, it earned a further $10.5 million and another $8 million in 1979. Its total rentals in the United States and Canada totaled $47.8 million from a gross of $119.5 million, becoming only the 10th film up to that time to pass the $100 million mark. Blazing Saddles was nominated for three Academy Awards, including Best Supporting Actress for Madeline Kahn, Film Editing, and Original Song for Blazing Saddles. In 2000, Blazing Saddles made AFI's 100 Years, 100 Laughs list at number 6. And finally, in 2006, Blazing Saddles was selected for preservation in the National Film Registry. Did you know? When the film was first screened for Warner Brothers executives, almost none of them laughed and the movie looked to be a disaster that the studio would not release. However, Mel Brooks quickly set up a subsequent screening for the studio's employees. When these regular folks laughed uproariously throughout the entire movie, Warner Brothers finally agreed to take a chance on releasing it. Did you know? Mel Brooks never told Frankie Lane that the theme song, Blazing Saddles, was for a comedy. Lane thought it was a dramatic western. Brooks was worried that Lane wouldn't sing it with conviction if he knew the truth. Did you know? Hedy Lamar sued Mel Brooks over the use of the name Hedley Lamar and settled out of court. Brooks said he was flattered by this attention. The reference to suing Hedy Lamar was from Harvey Corman's first day on the set and ironically made a comedic reference to what was at that point a non-existent lawsuit. Did you know? While filming, Burton Gilliam, Lyle, the henchman of Taggart, Slim Pickens, was having a difficulty time saying the N-word, especially to Cleavon Little, because he really liked him. Finally, after several takes, Little took Gilliam off to the side and told him it was okay because these weren't his words. Little jokingly added, quote, If I thought you would say those words to me in any other situation, we'd go to Fist City. But this is all fun. Don't worry about it. Did you know? The scene in which Cleavon Little aims his gun at his own head to save himself from the townspeople's wrath was based on an incident from Mel Brooks's childhood. He said that once, to his disbelief, he stole some gum and a water pistol from a drugstore. When a store worker tried to stop him, Brooks held the worker at bay with the very water pistol he had just taken from the store. Did you know? After promising Warner Brothers that he would edit out several offensive scenes, such as the infamous farting sequence, Mel Brooks never cut a single scene except one. After the room is darkened and Lily, Madeline Kahn, informs Bart... It's true. It's true. Bart, Cleveland Little, quietly states, you're sucking on my arm. 
The scene was later added back to the home video release. <laughs> uh. Did you know? When asked later about his frequent use of the N-word in the script, Brooks said he received consistent support for its use from Richard Pryor and Cleavon Little. He added that if the film were to be remade today, the controversial word would have to be omitted. And then you have no movie. After the film's release, he said he received many letters of complaint about the frequent N-word references, but, of course, most of them were from white people. Did you know? Gene Wilder said of the film, They've smashed racism in the face, but they're doing it while making you laugh. And with that, we will take our first break and be right back. Before we get back to the show, next week we will be bringing you episode 125. That means we're covering one of the big ones, and we're following up our earlier work this year with episode 100 on The Godfather and bringing you The Godfather Part 2. Directed by Francis Ford Coppola, co-written by Mario Puzo, starring Al Pacino, Robert De Niro, Robert Duvall, John Cazale, and Lee Strasberg. You won't want to miss that one, so watch ahead of the show by searching the Real Good app to find where it's streaming for you. That's R-E-E-L-G-O-O-D. Let's get to our best performances. Dad, who did you have down? Well, best performance I have to give to Harvey Corman. I've loved Harvey Corman from his days on The Carol Burnett Show, which I grew up with. The fact that he was the voice of the great gazoo on The Flintstones. He's just been so much in my early childhood as being a comedic talent, either as a straight man or as a comedian himself. I just love Harvey Corman. He took this role and made it his own and made an incredibly memorable performance. He's an extremely rich villain. He is conniving and evil, and you can really not be on his side for most of the film. And yet there's an electric quality to how he plays the villain because he's bumbling and stumbling, and yet he's somehow smarter than everybody, and he doesn't win at the end because he's outsmarted by a black guy. And realistically, he plays the straight man to most of these things, but he just has a way of setting up a lot of good jokes in the film. And I don't think that the movie works without him, because I don't know if you could get another good actor to play that part so convincingly in the way that he is able to play this kind of vile but comedic style that seems to work for the entirety of the film. But he was only my best secondary performer, and I'm rather shocked. I thought for sure, and to me, this is a runaway best performer, it's Mel Brooks. <laughs> like, how much credit do I even have to give for Mel Brooks for putting this together? This was almost unconceived of as a movie genre or a type, and in the span of a year, he releases this and Young Frankenstein. Well, I have I have Mel coming up in a later point, but I, I didn't give him best performance overall because I, I, I envision or consider Mel way beyond just a single performance. But it's the totality of his entire work, and to be able to craft this in his head, I, I swear that he probably had this since well before he had started putting together the producers, even as just kind of a bit that was running around in his mind. Well, this screenplay had originally been done by uh, somebody else, and they were actually, why am I drawing a blank, uh, the, the voice of Darth Vader. James, James Earl, Jones. Earl Jones. Yes, James Earl Jones was supposed to play the sheriff. And then... That's a much different sheriff. 
and the uh, the script was scrapped, and it fell into a pile of you know in development. And Brooks found it, and he took it and he rewrote it and he ran with it. And I mean, you mentioned the writer, but the first writing group, Brooks had other writers, including one that wrote for him and for the show he produced, Get Smart. He would have been at one time his dentist. And then it was Richard Pryor. And a lot of the black jokes and the racist jokes were written by Richard Pryor. You know, it was a very collaborative thing. So I, I, he, he created a genre, I understand. Okay, it started with the spoof of Broadway with the producers. Then it went to this. So I can understand where you're coming from on that. But I, again, I just think... I, I think you got to look at the whole body of the work. Okay, so then who did you go with for your best secondary performance? Best secondary performance, I could not differentiate between Gene Wilder and Cleavon Little, and for different reasons. I think uh, Gene Wilder played the part brilliantly for the laughs that were supposed to be and for the lightheartedness of the sidekick. But Cleavon Little did such a masterful job of holding the whole thing together and basically being the foundation for the entire script and for the, all of the comedy within it. Um, the fact that he's continuously able to outsmart everybody around him and to do it with a certain degree of class and he didn't overplay the hand at all. He played it just down the line perfectly so together, I can't imagine anything different than the two of them. And I, I couldn't differentiate. I don't do Cole Awards often. I think I've maybe done it once or twice before, but I couldn't differentiate between the two. Was Willy Wonka the original after or before this movie? Before. Okay. So we'd already seen that Gene Wilder could carry a movie and be affable. And obviously his probably second most famous movie was shortly after this movie, but I also had both of them down for category. It just happened to be most charismatic. I kind of went in the descending order and I thought, okay, Mel is the genius behind putting all of this together. Harvey Corman's the most central figure as far as an actor and the pivotal role of this movie being the villain. But your two most affable people are the two leading men that pretty much solve everything for the town. And I don't think you could find two more likable guys than both of these. I'm glad I get to experience Gene Wilder in some other films, but it, I think Cleavon Little primarily was a stage actor, if I have that information correct. And so it kind of uh, is a little disappointing that I didn't get to see him in more things because I think he's terrific as Sheriff Bart. He did a little bit of TV after this. I watched, a, uh, there was a TV show he did, that was on for a year or two that he starred in that I really enjoyed. And, uh, but yeah, pretty much he did stage work, uh, came over from stage work. But uh, yeah, Gene Wilder had also done the producers before this. Yeah, I did forget that. So I had them as secondary performance and you have them as charismatic. So I'm assuming Mel Brooks is your most charismatic? Yes, because he's bigger than life. The, 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 the conversation is, is who would you be starstruck by? Where you would have a difficult time talking to the person? Mel Brooks would be that for me. 
because I have so enjoyed his career from the days where he talked about writing for Sid Caesar on television to the movies, to the, the play, the producers, to so much of Mel Brooks and seeing interviews and conversations. I, I mean, I just love the man. I will honestly and truly cry when he passes. He's 96 years old. He is a treasure. I hope we have him for a longer time than I can think. But I, he's just bigger than life to me. I think he's contributed a lot to particularly the comedy genre. And, I mean, we've had a lot of genre spoofs for probably going back as far as this without too many other great examples. And he has a fairly high batting average among the spoof sequels, or excuse me, the genre spoofs, by comparison to some other franchises like the Scary Movie franchise that really kind of petered out after the first couple because the creative nature of the novelty wore off. Well, and you have to include the or Zucker Zucker and Abrams and the airplane and uh, police uh, squad and those as well, because they kind of took Mel Brooks and went a couple beyond. It all falls within. You wouldn't have had those films but for Mel Brooks. All right, best scene. I have quicksand, land snatching, land, land, sea snatch, introduction to Rock Ridge, the sheriff is near, Mongo, <laughs> Lily von Stupp, Outlaws for Hire, The French Mistake, and Man's Chinese Theater. Any you had down that I missed? I had separating or separate the introduction of the Waco Kid and the initial introduction where they're talking about his background with uh, while they're playing chess. Okay, so I guess we would do the Waco Kid somewhere in there. Yes. You are right. I, I missed that one, and that probably has quite a few good lines in there. Oh, yes. All right, so out of these, what would you say is the best scene? Probably signing up for the number six, where they're all going around and, like, rape, arson. Okay, so Outlaws for Hire, because the number six is at the beginning of the film. That was not a number six. Okay, my mistake. But Outlaws for Hire, that that's... That scene is just so, you know, they have all of the, the, every fascist organization lined up and it's just, <laughs> you just want to laugh and they're, they're signing up and putting it in and Harvey Corman's just sitting there and it's, it's to me, it plays so well and so cements the film and showing the idiocy of what's going on. I don't know. I think that given... You're highlighting some of the most egregious examples of racism in the movie, but I would say probably the one that shouldn't play well but does is The Sheriff is Near. That's just a great scene. We present to you this laurel and hearty handshake, the sign being recoiling on its own because of the sight of the black sheriff, the him holding the gun to himself. Oh, baby, you are so talented, and they are so dumb. It's a scene yes. that really should be rife with just, like, awkwardness, and for whatever reason, it's appealing. What's your favorite scene, then? The very end. 
I mean, after all, and I'll admit it, we went to to uh, Man's Chinese Theater. It's no longer. It's gone through multiple names. I th- I think it was Grauman's Chinese when they did the film, but it's now Man's. And I looked for, and I laid on Douglas Fairbanks's stone, his handprints or and feet prints, and I made your mother take a picture of me looking like uh, Harvey Corman dying about and talking about his tiny little feet. That's to me the ultimate line, the ultimate moment of the film. It's just so absurd. <laughs> it's just I. I Every time you mention that film, that's the line that comes back to me immediately. I will say, outside of authentic frontier gibberish, which I've made on many occasions about my grandfather, the scene that I've quoted the most often is Candy Graham from Mongo. It will easily be my favorite. I love Mongo. <laughs> I, I have a few other ones that we'll get to in the quotes that I quote often. Most indelible for me, it's the introduction to Rock Ridge. That whole song about Anal Johnson keeping the place nice and clean, all the way to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and Duck. <laughs> I don't know. When I think of this movie, that's the thing that I my mind immediately goes to first. Yeah, it is a great scene. I enjoy it tremendously. It is funny. It helps set up the rest of the film and lays the the groundwork. Just the sure fact of sitting there listening to all these guys in town named Johnson and trying to figure out. I mean, Van Johnson was an actor. Howard Johnson was a a restaurant and hotel chain. Uh, I mean, it was just Gabby Johnson is nothing more than a takeoff of Gabby Hayes, a film star of the 40s and 50s. I mean, it's just it was so well done to border on the absurd that it just worked. The most indelible for me, again, is just the whole lead up to the signing everybody up and them going to go after Rockridge and then the Lepetamine toll booth. <laughs> what will that asshole think of next? Somebody go get a whole shitload of dimes. <laughs> Uh, yeah. It just reminds me of what everybody thinks of when they talk about politicians and anytime there's a new slight inconvenience in their lives. <laughs> yes. What are you talking about? My property tax went up $5. What will those assholes think of next? Never be late picking up their trash. All right, that's a good spot for our second break. We'll be right back. Before we get back to the regular show, Dad, it seems like we have a few people to remember this week. We do, unfortunately. Shanka Ducare, uh, an American actress, uh, 44, was in the Elvis film that's currently playing in theaters. Uh, She was also a singer and is on the soundtrack. Yeah, and she had kind of a moving tribute from Baz Luhrmann. I don't know how many things she'd been in up to this point, but not having seen the movie myself... Apparently was very good in it, and to have her have, I guess, somewhat of a breakthrough role only to unfortunately pass away is uh, depressing. Well, having anybody pass away is depressing, but to do it when a career is just budding is 
just a, an exercise in what may have been. We also lost Bob Rafelson, 89. He was an American director and producer. He did five easy pieces. He was involved in Easy Rider. Postman Rings Twice, a uh, Jack Nicholson film that I saw when I was a freshman in high school and wanted to know what the fuck this was. But anyway, and then he was instrumental in the movie, or excuse me, the TV series, The Monkees, which uh, derived a... Uh, several classic rock and roll pieces as a result. He seemed to have a hand in a lot of things that went down in the late 60s and early 70s was the predominance of his career. He was only a producer on Easy Rider, but that kind of really gave him a step up within Hollywood past the TV work that he'd done on the Monkees series. And really his biggest claim to fame is being the director of Five Easy Pieces that was a Best Picture nominee in the early 70s. We also lost Tony Dow, 77. He was an American actor. He's best known as playing uh, Wally on uh, Wally Cleaver on Leave It to Beaver. He did the uh, new Leave It to Beaver show. He also directed television. Uh, uh, Babylon 5 was his most recent piece. Interestingly, he's he had been fighting and had remission from liver cancer, came back, they actually reported his death a couple of days ago, but then retracted, and now apparently he did finally pass today. Interestingly, his mother had been the stunt double for Clara Bow in the silent film era. And as a kid, as a result of that, he got uh, auditioned for the part and uh, changed his life uh, or the trajectory of his life forever. I don't have much experience with him, but I, I'm sure a lot of people grew up with him on Leave it to Beaver. I think that was a relatively successful show of the, what, the 50s or the 60s? 50s. For my generation, which is the late baby boom that grew up in the late 60s and 70s, uh, Leave it to Beaver was a very popular syndicated show because... You'd come home from school, you would have a series of uh, syndicated sitcoms that would play Leave it to Beaver being among them, Gilligan's Island, Hogan's Heroes, the Beverly Hillbillies, etc. So everybody my age grew up watching the old reruns of Leave it to Beaver. We also lost Kevin Rooney, 71. He was a comedy writer. He was involved in uh, Harry Met Sally. The Dennis Miller Show, and was uh, a writer for The Tonight Show and Jay Leno. I remember uh, years ago when Comedy Central was the comedy channel, and they showed 24 hours a day of video from comedy clubs. I remember watching Kevin Rooney perform during that time frame of the uh, early 90s. thought he was extremely funny. And uh, unfortunately, he passed. He's certainly not somebody I was a very familiar with coming in, but having read through his obituary, he had some very moving tributes from Jay Leno, who he wrote Jay Leno's first real stand-up sketch and helped produce the, the original stand-up hour that he had. He was a instrumental force on Jay Leno's Tonight Show when that was the number one late night show in America for years. He has a lot of comedians that really reached out en masse, including 
people like Jerry Seinfeld or Dennis Miller, Dave Letterman, that uh, all were tributing him uh, because he was one of the guys that they really kind of came up with. And it's uh, sad to see talent like that, unfortunately, pass. And, you know, a lot of comedians uh, just don't have the same stage presence that others do, but they're extremely funny nevertheless. So they find their, their voice by writing for others. And I think that's what Kevin Rooney ended up doing was realizing he did not have the the it factor on stage. And so he really made other comedians better by his presence. And then lastly, Paul Servino, uh, 83, American actor. Goodfellas, The Rocketeer, and Law and & Order. Let me uh, indicate that one film that was not I did not mention is one of my favorite parts that Paul Servino played, which is Oh God. It was Mel, it was Carl uh, Reiner's first directorial film. It had John Denver in the lead, and Paul Servino played the part of a evangelical religious figure who challenged Don, John Denver, who was chosen by God, played by George Burns, to tell people to stop trying to use his name inappropriately for ill purposes, such as collections of money and wealth and uh, stating of things that were not biblical or godlike. Basically poking fun at the modern Pharisees. Yes. And I think you could probably make Oh God now, and it would be just as relevant. But Paul Serino did such a great job, and it was such a departure from the films he had done where he was always playing a mobster because of his uh, Italian background. And um, uh, I just always loved him, thought he was a great actor, Uh, never got the uh, huge parts or the star power that he deserved because he was so good, and I I will miss him and his uh, work in general. There are two things I'd like to particularly note that have kind of come out in the wake of his passing this last week. One being a lot of tributes that mention his daughter, the Academy Award-winning actress Mira Servino, and her acceptance speech of her Oscars where, of her Oscar, where she specifically calls out and mentions her father who breaks down and cries during the speech. And it was kind of a moving moment that I think has kind of resurfaced in something that I was not necessarily aware of. She won her Oscar in, I think, the late 90s. But a generational family of acting, and he obviously had some impact in a lot of different areas, TV, uh, significant movies. So his presence can be felt there, but there's also been a commentary now. This is at least the fourth major mob or mafia or, you know, major television or movie tough guy to have passed in the last couple of months. We lost Ray, Ray Liotta. We lost Jimmy Kahn. We lost Tony Sirico. Now we've got Paul Servino and just kind of the lost now generation of the film tough guys as they age out or we kind of have to move past where we were in the late 80s, 90s, 2000s. Even for Jimmy Kahn, it would have been the early 70s. And 
just the difference in where movies have gone now, where these roles are not really created. We don't have the same type of actors as these guys. So just a remembrance of a time where this was a staple of what Hollywood did. There was always the Hollywood tough guy and the tough guy lead. And that's somehow going away now. So we remember all of these figures with a moment of silence in their honor. Thank you. All right. For anyone that's seen the film, now you get to watch us engorge ourselves on movie quotes. <laughs> I think originally the record we held for most movie quotes nominated for a single film was Dodgeball with 27. I don't know how many this one has, but it may rival that one. So you may be here a little while while we just basically quote to you some of the things that we've been finding funny for 20 plus or in dad's case, 30 plus years. Probably 40. You can start. Jim consoling Bart after being upset by his attempts to ingratiate himself to the citizens of Rock Ridge. What did you expect? Welcome, Sonny. Make yourself at home. Marry my daughter. You've got to remember that these are just simple farmers. They're people of the land, the common clay of the New West. You know. Morons. Bart returns unexpectedly after being sentenced to death. Charlie. They said you was hung, Bart, and they was right. Bart, hearing a crash in the cell. The drunken number two must be awake. Walking over to the cell, Bart, are we awake? Jim, hanging upside down from the bunk. We're not sure, are we? Black? Bart says, yes, we are. Then I'm awake, but very puzzled. Bart, disguised as a Klansman, describes his qualifications as a villain. Bart, stampeding cattle, Headley Lamar, that's not much of a crime. Through the Vatican? Kinky! Sign here. Edley Lamar, my mind is a raging torrent, flooded with rivulets of thought cascading into a waterfall of creative alternatives. Taggart, God darn it, Mr. Lamar, you use your tongue prettier than a $20 whore. Taggart, what do you want me to do, sir? Lamar, I want you to round up every vicious criminal and gunslinger in the West. Take this down. Taggart looks for a pen and paper while Headley talks. I want rustlers, cutthroats, murderers, bounty hunters, desperados, mugs, pugs, thugs, nitwits, halfwits, dimwits, vipers, snipers, conmen, Indian agents, Mexican bandits, muggers, buggerers, bushwhackers, hornswogglers, horse thieves, bull dykes, train robbers, bank robbers, ass kickers, shit kickers, and... Methodists! <laughs> How you can get that line out without busting up, I don't know. Could you repeat that, sir? Hetty Lamar. Men, you are about to embark on a great crusade to stamp out runaway decency in the West. Now you men will be only risking your lives, while I will be risking an almost certain Academy Award nomination for Best Supporting Actor. A line so famous in our own house that even mom has quoted it. Lily von Stuck. Would you like another Schnitzengruben? No, thank you, baby. Fifteen is my limit on Schnitzengruben. 
Well, then, how about a little whispers in his ear? Baby, please, I am not from Havana. <laughs> Will I see you again? Well, it all depends on how much vitamin E I can get my hands on. Taggart looking for two volunteers to check out the quicksand. Bart, sir, he specifically requested to N-word. Well, well, to tell the family secret, my grandmother was Dutch. I didn't know your grandmother was Dutch. <laughs> Lamar and Lepetamane. Meeting adjourned. Oh, I am sorry, sir. I didn't mean to overstep my bounds. You say that. What? Meeting is adjourned. It is? No, you say that, Governor. What? Meeting is adjourned. It is? Here, play around with this for a while. Thank you, Hetty. No, it's Headley. It is? I got it. I know how we can run everyone out of Rock Ridge. Lamar, how? Taggart, we'll kill a firstborn child in every household. Lamar, too Jewish. What's your name? Well, my name is Jim, but most people call me... Jim. Lily von Stoop, tell me, Shotzi, is it true what they say the way you people are gifted? Oh, it's true, it's true, it's true. Mongo only pawn in Game of Life. Headley the Marf. Now go do that voodoo that you do so well. Well, Jim, since you are my guest and I am your host, what is your pleasure? What do you like to do? Oh, I don't know. Play chess? Screw? Well, let's play chess. <laughs> Howard Johnson. As chairman of the welcoming committee, it is my privilege to extend a laurel and hearty handshake to our new N-word. Uh, one we already mentioned before, but Lepetamine Thruway? Now what'll that asshole think of next? Has anybody got a dime? Somebody's got to go back and get a shitload of dimes. Little Ivan Stoop, you don't admit it. He's too much of a man for you. You, I know. You're going to need an army to beat him. You're finished. They're tag. They're fallen. They're vlumping. They're blungin. They're cracked. My mind is aglow with whirling transient nodes of thought, careening through a cosmic vapor of invention. Ditto. Ditto? Ditto, you provincial putts? Lamar's dying words at the feet of Douglas Fairbanks' stone impression. How did he do such fantastic stunts with such little feet? Jim downs a bottle of whiskey and one long guzzle. Bart. A man drink like that and he don't eat? He is going to die. Jim. When? Jim. Well, then it got that every pissant prairie punk who thought he could shoot a gun would ride into town to try out the Waco kid. I must have killed more men than Cecil B. DeMille. It got pretty gritty. I started to hear the word draw in my sleep. Then one day, I was just walking down the street when I heard a voice behind me say, Reach for it, mister. I spun around. 
And there I was, face to face with a six-year-old kid. Well, I just threw my guns down and walked away. The little bastard shot me on the ass. <laughs> so I limped to the nearest saloon, crawled into a whiskey bottle, and I've been there ever since. Governor Lepetamine. Thank you, Hetty. Thank you. It's not Hetty. It's Headley. Headley Lamar. What the hell are you worried about? This is 1874. You'll be able to sue her. That's all I had. Oh, I got several yet. I figured as much. I'm rapidly becoming a big underground success in this town. See, in another 25 years, you'll be able to shake their hands in broad daylight. While Mongo is beating the hell out of a bar full of toughs, Bart walks in dressed as a messenger boy and carrying a box. Candygram for Mongo. Candygram for Mongo. Me, Mongo. Sign, please. Mongo grabs the paper and makes some rough scratches on it. Thank you. He gives Mongo the box and walks out of the bar, putting his fingers to his ears. Mongo like candy. He opens the box and it explodes. The number of times I've offered candy gram from Mongo or for Mongo is I couldn't count. Finally, Olson Johnson, after Gabby Johnson's speech. Now who can argue with that? I think we're all indebted to Gabby Johnson for clearly stating what needed to be said. I'm particularly glad that these lovely children were here to hear that speech today. Not only was it authentic frontier gibberish, it expressed a courage little seen in this day and age. <laughs> I, I remember so well the first time that I used that during our dueling bigots conversation. <laughs> it just got you absolutely roaring. I know. The number of times I've sat in a, uh, in a political meeting in one of my various venues that I've been serving on and just wrote down frontier gibberish after somebody finished talking. <laughs> All right, let's go to the Stanley rubric then. Legacy is up first. All right. This one was a little difficult. I had to, I, I went with the industry first. Okay, this is a revered comedy, and yet, you know, we've got the problems with the N-word throughout, okay? And as Mel Brooks has readily admitted, you couldn't make it today because of it. But in the context of what it was and what it was supposed to be, and the fact that it's number six on the chart of laughs from the AFI, the fact that it is so well-placed. It has so much impact that I believe it directly led to Zucker Zucker Nabrams coming up with the airplane and the um, police squad films and all of the rest of those genre. I had to give it a five. And for the public, for Legacy, this is a film that for people who love comedies, it's still poignant. It may have lost some luster among the younger generation, but when they watch it, if you can get them to watch it, they fall in love with the film, even though their sensibilities may tell them they shouldn't. So I went with a 4.5 for the public over the long haul. So I went with a 9.5 for Legacy. Well, I think you're high on both numbers. Simply put, while comedies have a certain reverence and this this has garnered a bigger status 
since its original release, partly uh, in the immediate presence due to the audience reaction to it as opposed to the critics who didn't know what they had on their hands at the time. I still can't give it full marks because comedy ages poorly among like the film critic crowd, the high-minded, the analytical type who like to pick these apart. And because comedy does not hold up usually over decades, they hold in esteem some like Marx Brothers movies and Charlie Chaplin, and then basically comedy dies after that among Hollywood critics and artsy historical types. So this movie has some reverence, but it's not like one of the uber high up on the list comedies. I mean, the fact that it's got to compete with things like Dr. Strangelove, that's the kind of things that it's directly having to compete against in order to be accredited. I just felt felt that it was probably at a four. I'm going to move it up to a 4.5 for the industry just because you did make a good point that it has a long tail of the genre spoof that I hadn't necessarily considered in my original score. So I'll make that a 4.5 for the industry. But the audience for me, I really don't see where you have evidence at all, unless it's anecdotal, of people watching this film and being introduced to it of a modern generation that love this movie. In fact, I would say that it's waned among the public that maybe liked it originally and probably haven't seen it in 30 years. I think you're a little bit clouded by the fact that you love this movie and I love this movie, but that I don't think the general population really thinks about this that much. I think if you mention Blazing Saddles, a few people might be able to tell you a few things about it, but it just does not live in the minds of the general public at all. And so I give it a 3.5 on that, so that ends up as an 8. Okay. And the average between us then would be in 8.75. Impact significance? I kind of flipped this, where at the time, I think this was huge among the audience, but I don't think it was particularly big among the critics or the industry types. So I've kind of, I think I ended up with a three for the industry because there was an appreciation for it. It also made a good amount of money. And the fact that they were willing to re-release it twice in the subsequent years, two and five years later, I think does say something about them. But it also says more about the audience, that this was a very popular movie. But comparatively so, this is a year before Jaws. It's three years before Star Wars, which were the biggest movies of probably any era. It was a couple of years after The Godfather that was enormous, so... I can't put it on a complete five for the audience, so I went with a 4.5. This is one of those that was popular, but it wasn't necessarily the runaway hit that some of these other major blockbusters were, and so I ended up at a 7.5 overall. For the industry, I also went with a three, and I would point out that it did get some positive reviews. Some. It got uh, very high remarks by Roger Ebert. It got very high remarks for a comedy by Gene Siskel. He gave it a three out of four. Yes, which for Gene Siskel was huge because Gene Siskel had absolutely no sense of humor, as far as I could tell from watching his show. And and for the public at the time, it made a lot of money compared to the overall budget. And it really did live. And I can say that within that five years of its release, 
it was well regarded. I mean, I remember talking about this film in, in high school and people a lot of my age. Yes, and I have my 40th class reunion coming up. We talk about this film. So I went with a 4.5 there also. So that also gives me a, a 7.5, which is the same as yours. And did you need help with that math? I think I'm good. Okay, good. Novelty. There really aren't a ton of films like this before it. I think you could say that maybe The Producers is somewhat of a genre spoof, but I don't really think it is. I think you kind of made a claim earlier in the show to that being the case, but is it? Eh, not, Not so much in my mind because it's not directly spoofing too much other than maybe you could poke fun at the musicals. But really, it was relying on one musical number in particular as opposed to musical numbers throughout. So I don't really look at it as the same. And I really look at this more as a genre spoof. The only other one I could hold where I would say that it's somewhat of a genre spoof is maybe Dr. Strangelove. And so I can't give it a full 10. I'll go probably in the range of a 9 or a 9.5. I could be talked up to a 9.5. Okay, there was a, at least a couple of genre spoofs before this. Casino Royale, which spoofed the James Bond series, existed before this. That was done in the mid-60s. And um, so that reason, I don't think it was really as much of a spoof uh, the directly as this was and did more to take down or attack or how would you say? Undermine. Yeah, undermine an entire series or genre of films. So I went with a 9.5 because of that. It had existed, but it wasn't to the same level. I think there are a lot of unique things about this film and the fact that it's held up as a novelty of its time and era. And I think that the humor, which will come back around in classicness is still so biting and topical and relevant, I think gives it a credibility to the novelty. So I guess I'll match your 9.5. I've kind of talked myself into it, but I really don't think there are too many movies like this. I, I would almost be very tempted to, and I was initially thinking, is this a 10? And I don't think it's quite there, but it's pretty close. The only reason I didn't give it a 10 was because of Casino Royale poking fun at Bond. So classicness. I'll let you have this first because this is probably going to be the most controversial score we have. Wow. It it was so difficult because... You have to use the N-word when this was done in order to make the film work. In modern sensibilities, you can't do it. And so it loses something in that. The problem that a lot of people have in watching this film is is there's some people that would be so offended by the number or the times it's used and how it's used that I don't think some people, I think some people would turn it off immediately. Unfortunately, you have to take it into account that this was, 
written in part and encouraged by Richard Pryor and Cleavon Little as a way of poking fun at systemic racism. And if you take it in that context, it'll hold up a bit, but I had to go down on this significantly. So I went with a five for classicness. And the only reason I went from five, I originally gave it a four and went up to a five simply because I saw again, some of the interviews that Mel Brooks had given talking about Cleavon Little and Richard Pryor and their encouragement to do this so that it emphasized the stupidity of racism. So I went with a five. So then I'm going to be the more controversial one on this. I take your points wholeheartedly. It's some of the very points that I considered myself. How much do you give down because of the abundance of the use of a term that's not in modern society, especially after the last couple of years with the George Floyd protests and everything that's gone on since then, the Black Lives Matter movement, etc. I can understand that. But you also have to recognize this was an audacious movie for its subject material, its humor, and who was being placed in charge of a major motion picture. You had a prominent Jewish comedian, director, a prominent and possibly Mount Rushmore black comedian, you had a leading man who was black, who was placed in a position of power that he was never otherwise placed in, and outwitted the bad guy who was a white guy in a position of privilege and power in politics, who only gave him his job because he thought he would be inept and drive everybody nuts, and defeats him through his own ingenuity and smarts. I think to me, all of that says it's as classic if you can get past the initial rough edges as just about anything else, especially in comedy where you have to push the boundaries. And so maybe this is me being short-sighted from my area of privilege and about a movie that I've loved for a long time, but I really don't have a problem with that where I think it kind of washes itself out. What I would say, though, is even if you gave it extra marks down, the humor in this ages in a way that nothing else from the 70s seems to age. (laughs) True. There are not too many other comedies you can hold up. Young Frankenstein and Blazing Saddles are like or are unlike any other movie comedies of the time. I mean, I tell you how much I think Animal House is an abhorrent movie because it's just not funny. And yet this, for whatever reason, still seems as relevant and biting as it was at the time. Maybe not quite as audacious on some parts, but certainly as audacious with a lot of the racial jokes. And so I actually found this to be an eight. All right. Well, some of your points actually resonated with me. So I will actually increase my five to a six simply because you did note that it it was so obvious that they were overplaying this to emphasize the, the stupidity of using the term or of 
I, I guess I'm struggling to exactly articulate what I'm thinking. What you're trying to say is the weakness of the word that it is just by nature a word, a set of letters combined to give itself meaning. It's much like the George Carlin pointing out that words only have the meanings that we give them. And so if we look at things that they're just words, they really can't actually hurt then we can get past some of the rough edges on the rest of it and get to the meaning behind the rest of it. And that's what they're really trying to explore is the meaning behind the use of that word. Uh, you, you make good points. So anyway, the point being is, is I'll go up to a six. So then we have rewatchability. You said after we finished watching the movie, it's a 10 for you. For me, it's a 9.5. It's not the elite company for me. It's just short of that, but I love this movie, so it's a 9.5. I've had a lot of bad days over the last six, seven months. For the few that know me very well, you would understand exactly what I mean. And this is a film that I could put on, and it will brighten my mood and make me happier, simply because it has both a comedic level and a feeling that I am helping to show the stupidity or idiocy of prejudice in general. Um, so there's a social aspect that makes me happy as well. So that's a 9.75 between us. Audience score on this one, we had an 88% for Google users. We had a 91% for Rotten Tomato users for an 8.95. So to recap the categories, we had an 8.75 for Legacy, a 7.5 for Impact Significance, a 9.5 for Novelty, a 7 for Classicness, a 9.75 for Rewatchability, and an 8.95 for Audience Score, giving us a final total of 51.45 and tying it on the list with Apollo 13 and, get this, Young Frankenstein. <laughs> <laughs> perfect. Absolutely perfect. All right, remaining questions. I don't really have any remaining questions. I mean, I've seen the film so many times. There are questions that I have. I would love to be able to talk to Mel Brooks and just ask him why he did certain things in certain ways. But to have answers almost destroys the myth behind what I think is the result. Sometimes you just should just accept <laughs> what your thoughts are on certain things instead of trying to seek clarification. So I don't have any. I'm going to shut up at that point. You could ask the perfunctory ones like, where do Bart and Jim end up at the end of the movie? But that doesn't seem all that interesting to me. Why doesn't mine go, go with them? If he's tied at the hip to Sheriff Bart, shouldn't he go with them? Yeah. Gonna go find a Emmanuel Lewis, so that one goes over my head. Anyway, what is the French mistake? <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't wanna go there. Fair enough. No, the real remaining question that I have is I think I watched this for the first time too young. And so I didn't understand it from a whole host of different things. So I'll pose this question. One, because the humor has to be held in a certain context. 
but you also don't want to ruin your sensibilities where you take it so dearly that you can be easily offended by this movie. So what is the right age to first view Blazing Saddles? Uh, Okay, so you're saying I showed it to you when you were too young. Well, the ending just makes so little sense, and I think you have to have an appreciation for the fourth wall and all of the other parameters that it's being broken. So you have to have an understanding of movie culture in some of that. To me, about the right age is about 20 to 21. Boy, I I understand your point, but I think that there's more sophistication among the younger crowd in their level of entertainment and what they're familiar with. They'll get it more than what you uh, are getting. Hold on. My generation that you've been picking on for years as being too dense to pick up on stuff that was clearly evident to your generation, just to pat yourselves constantly on the back. And now you want to give credit to the generation below me, the TikTokers? Now, what I'm going to do is, is I'm going to say your generation and the generation below you have certain advances or certain sophistication. Like, for example, they'll be able to pick out the nuances of a film but yet can't figure out how they're supposed to handle their security deposit for their apartment when they go off to college. So it's a very mixed situation where they'll have nuances within certain spheres, but other common sense situations, they'll lack basic understanding. I call on you, Generation Millennial and Z, attack. Feel free. All right, remaining thoughts for the week. This was a a, a week that uh, has been a little difficult for me personally and professionally, and I must say that recording this has brightened my mood considerably. I'm looking forward to going into the next week where we uh, do Godfather 2, which I've seen probably 90% of over four or five watchings. Uh, I'll have to sit down and watch it from the very beginning. And looking forward to that. I know we have several guests. I'm looking forward to that. I'm looking forward to the next several weeks of uh, recording because we think we're bringing some interesting films to our listeners. I will tell you in advance that one of the remaining questions will be next week, whether Godfather Part 1 or Part 2 is better. Okay. That'll do it for us this week. Thank you for listening. Where are you headed, cowboy? Nowhere special? Nowhere special. I always wanted to go there. Next week, we will be bringing you episode 125. That means we're covering one of the big ones, and we're following up our earlier work this year with episode 100 on The Godfather and bringing you The Godfather Part 2. Directed by Francis Ford Coppola, co-written by Mario Puzo, starring Al Pacino, Robert De Niro, Robert Duvall, John Cazale, and Lee Strasberg. You won't want to miss that one, so watch ahead of the show by searching the Real Good app to find where it's streaming for you. That's R-E-E-L-G-O-O-D. Please like, follow, rate, and review, or whatever on whichever platform you have so that you can join in on our fun. You can also email the show at thenewronnieduncanstudios.com or sign up for our newsletter, find our new Facebook page under Greatest Movie of All Time Podcast, or find us on Instagram, Twitter, or now TikTok at the handle at Podcast. 
The Greatest Movie of All Time is a production of Ronnie Duncan Studios. Our show is mixed, edited, and written by Thomas Duncan. Our music is thanks to Purple Planet Music. Our technical provider and distributor is Captivate FM. <laughs>